0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McClendon.
1: And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And Kevin, I'm feeling a little dramatic.
0: So is that what the the skull over on the mantelpiece and the Shakespearean garb is all about?
1: Oh, no, that's just ordinary, like everyday decoration and wardrobe. Um, No, we're going to be discussing two very different drama movies for this week's episode.
0: Well, we definitely take drama where we can find it. First up is a patron pick, actually, from listener Ron Sturry. We're going to be talking about the latest film to net Penelope Cruz some awards attention 2021's parallel mothers
1: and then we're going to be switching registers to a slightly more understated drama um we are going to be talking about Yasujiro ozu's tokyo story
0: oh man i can't wait to talk about that one it's going to be a good one on episode 334 of seeing and believing Welcome to episode 334 of Seeing and Believing Listeners, or as we're going to call it this week, the episode with two watch list segments. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we have the usual in the second segment where we're going to be talking about Tokyo Story, but... This is also uh, an episode where we're going to be f- featuring a, uh, a patron pick from one of our listeners. And that's essentially them dictating to both of us a movie that neither of us is, have seen. So Watch we'll list,
1: be- dealer's choice, basically.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I-, I like that. Uh, this one is uh, actually a patron pick from a longtime listener, Ron Sture. Uh We've shared his feedback on a couple of recent shows uh, most recently uh, about the northman mm-hmm. but ron had a had a boned pick in in that same email in which he uh talked to us about the northman he also was expressed a, a little bit of dissatisfaction that we hadn't uh, seen and or talked about parallel mothers mm-hmm. on the air and he decided that's going to be his uh his patron pick so kill two birds with one stone and uh get to talk about that on the show today.
1: It's a movie that like, I feel like I heard a lot about, especially with regards to the best actress race for the Oscars, and mm-hmm. it's one that I try to watch as many of those as I possibly can, and this past year it just didn't happen, so I'm really glad of the opportunity to catch up with something that a lot of people were talking about.
0: Yeah, well, better late than never for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, in Ron's recommendation to us, one thing that he mentioned that he really liked about this, this film was... Uh, he said that he enjoyed the film's themes of forgiveness and truth-telling and, yes, singled out Penelope Cruz's great performance. So that was definitely something that was kind of floating around in my mind as I as I watched this film. So with that in mind, uh, let's jump right in. Parallel Mothers, for any listeners who aren't familiar with it, is the story of Janice, played here by Penelope Cruz. Janice is a middle-aged photographer who is on the verge of resolving a historical trauma that her grandparents suffered during the spanish civil war when she gets pregnant unexpectedly while delivering her child in the hospital she forms a bond with a young single mother-to-be named anna and that bond follows them out of the hospital and into the world where complications to their motherhood and their relationship to each other threaten to become overwhelming so that uh synopsis is kind of leaving a lot of the specific plot developments in the dark because i think there a, a big part of watching this film for the first time or at least it was for me mm-hmm. was just not really knowing where any of this is going it mm-hmm. it's sprawling el madovar Uh, the the writer-director really does a lot to keep the audience guessing. Mm -hmm. So um, with that in mind, uh, maybe it would be good to start where Ron started, I guess, with that theme of forgiveness and truth-telling, because that's obviously something that figures prominently into both of the main plot strands that are running through this film. Mm -hmm. So Sarah, my question for you is, uh, did you also find the same themes in this film as Ron did, And what was your own personal reaction to this story of mothers and generations?
1: Yeah, um, the truth telling piece in particular was one that I picked up on. Like there's a very strong thread of um, obviously Penelope Cruz's Janice is a photographer, so she's taking photos. There's there's going to be some sort of piece about like the way that the camera presents or conceals the truth. Um, the forgiveness piece was one that, um, I don't think I necessarily picked up on quite as much. I think I was thinking about this more in terms of bringing hard truths to light and then kind of grappling with the consequences, but the forgiveness pieces, those those threads felt like they were still very much up in the air. I don't feel like they were necessarily resolved by the movie's end. And maybe that's because there was a lot that happened between movie start and movie finish, um, I think this movie is kind of billed as a drama and, and to me it feels a little bit more like a melodrama where you're just piling a lot of different plot points on top of each other um, in order to get an emotional reaction from the audience. Um melodrama is something that I kind of have a hard time with. So I don't I don't know, Kevin, what's hmm. what's your mileage with that? Uh uh you know,
0: uh, melodrama I, I can I can get on board with it. Um it's 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 one of those subgenres, I guess, where it's difficult to articulate when it works and why it works, but you definitely know when mm-hmm. it's when it's working for you. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the the themes of uh, forgiveness and truth telling, um, obviously like I, I'm with you that the the theme of bringing the truth into into the light is obviously a big part of pretty much all aspects of this film. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness I'm I, I would probably refine that to be. Reconciliation, hmm. because that's that word carries connotations not just of reconciliation between you know one person who committed a wrong and another person who must forgive them, mm-hmm. but also just the idea of uh, reconciling yourself to something that that you experience or or, or a lack that you feel, hmm. and that's definitely something that was probably struck me the hardest about this film was the as the film goes on and we we see you know mothers being separated from their children mm-hmm. um uh people suffering deep griefs that that simply can't be easily solved mm-hmm. um and the way that that intertwines with the the societal trauma of living in a country where there's this this dark and very um recent past mm-hmm. of Of state violence and, you know, people being disappeared. That's the way that Almodovar interweaves those two and has them kind of comment on and enrich each other, I thought was was really effective and my favorite part of the film.
1: It's funny because I think that was the piece where I felt like I was um, struggling the most to catch up. So I have passing familiarity with um, the history of Spain but it was one of those things where I had to remind myself like oh this is reference to the Spanish Civil War and then to fascism and Francisco Franco's dictatorship um and I had to do a little bit of reading to kind of understand some of the the heavier like political pieces especially um, so there's the historical memory act that they're discussing at the very beginning about um, trying to find and exhume, mass graves from the spanish civil war like this is just a thread that sort of like comes and goes throughout the course of the movie um and at first i I needed to double check and make sure that i understood what they were talking about and whether or not it was something that was was real um so this is purely a failing on my part for not understanding the history piece there um and then it kind of led me down a little bit of a rabbit hole where i feel like i just barely scratched the surface of. A lot of the history that happened in the 30s onward until I think it was the 70s when Spain started to become a a democracy again. Um, So part of it was I felt like I was trying to catch up to a lot of the cultural context for this movie. Um, And I think I would have appreciated it a little bit more if I had been primed a little bit for that or had been thinking ahead a little bit about what the history that this movie is grappling with was grappling with because it is very definitely grappling with quite a lot through the lens of this one small like microcosm of sort of a a family or a group of people who are all sort of dealing with the same issues, but on a very much smaller scale and much more personal scale.
0: Yeah. And, and the, the difficulty in, in sorting through those, you know, all, all those complexities, um, I think I, I I'm really impressed with the way that Almodovar is able to uh use uh uh parallel images mm-hmm. to suggest the parallelisms between the the situation of Janice and Anna and also the the society at large so he his camera often focuses on Janice uh using a mask to sort of like scroll through some information uh at in the opening scene it's her or uh The second scene, I guess. It's her uh, kind of scrolling through pictures of her family and and telling this forensic anthropologist uh, that she's working with about about her own family's history and identifying these different figures from her past. And then later on, we see that same shot repeated as Janice is scrolling through the results of a DNA test Mm -hmm. uh, to determine uh, parentage of a child. And the ways in which the revelations contained in that report are every bit as destabilizing mm-hmm. and difficult for her to reconcile uh, as uh, the generational trauma. And I just, uh, it's, it, it, when you say it out loud, like generational trauma, and then folding that into a story about mothers, and you know, it's, it sounds a little bit on the nose. But I think that. Uh, it's handled with a delicacy that I really appreciated.
1: Mm, mm-hmm. Especially because the generational trauma kind of mirrors this this covering up of the previous generational trauma. Like there used to be an agreement that you just wouldn't talk about the Spanish Civil War or about bad. the dictatorship at all. Um, and so this act that allows... Um, these different people to come in and exume these mass graves is a much more recent development in Spain's history. And then it's also um, something that I, th- I think the older generation has like a little bit of a harder time getting on board with. So there's both this generational trauma of grappling with the actions of what people have done in the past and how we've decided to talk or not talk about them. And then also grappling with, well, what does the newer generation want to do about this sort of same situation? And so I think, Anna and Janice, Anna being the younger mother, uh, the younger parallel mother here, um, her approach towards motherhood is a much more different one. I think Janice begins being much more um, optimistic about life in the future and, and she feels like she still has her whole life ahead of her and there's this brand new life that she's bringing into it. And Anna kind of feels like the world hasn't really been set up for her to be able to succeed as a mother necessarily. Partly because she is just so young, and she doesn't have that support, same support network that Janice has built around her. So um, I don't know. Like I, I find those parallels fascinating. I kind of wish that I had gotten a little bit more time in Anna's head as opposed to Janice's head. This movie feels very much like it is Penelope Cruz's movie, Mm -hmm. and it's been talked about in that way. And part of me wonders. If some of the, I don't know, the oxygen around the rest of the pieces of the story has been sort of pulled into the flame that is her performance. <laughs> I,
0: I mean, she's a star for a good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess that's maybe that's a good jumping off point to dig into the melodrama. You know, we've mm-hmm. we talked about the um, political and social commentary that Almodovar brings to this film, but we haven't talked about like. The actual story—the story of parallel mothers of yeah. Janice and, and Anna—and the way their relationship develops and changes pretty radically over the course of the film. So mm-hmm. maybe we can dig into that a little bit, since you know we, we we've mentioned that melodrama can be a little tricky sometimes to get a, a handle on. Whether it's working and if it is or if it isn't, why is it? You know, why is it working or not working in that way? So, I mean, let's kind of dig into that a little bit. What uh, what did you make of the of this central relationship between uh, Penelope Cruz's character and and the younger woman?
1: Maybe this is where the the melodrama didn't necessarily work for me, as it kind of felt like it was everything sort of was brought together by one. Pretty horrific coincidence. I don't know how much we want to actually get into like all of the individual. It's it's, a more recent
0: picture where, like, we are usually a little bit more free with spoilers with these kinds of movies. But this is only a year old, so we'll try to dance around it a little
1: bit. That sounds good. There, there is a coincidence that I think ties these two women together, um, inextricably, and in a way where one of them, Janice, kind of has more information about what's happened than Anna has, and she's the one with all of the power in the relationship and I think she recognizes that and she's very good at like being delicate about that but um I don't know like (laughs) it felt kind of like there was there was a reveal after a reveal after a reveal sort of piled on top of each other within minutes and I think that's where The melodrama lost me is is just you could tell that there was another twist kind of coming down the road and I couldn't quite tell what that twist or what that turn was going to be I could just tell you that there was going to be another revelation and the revelation was going to be something that would throw everybody in the situation into something that feels slightly more worse than the situation that they're already. (laughs) And that's the kind of like downward slope sort of plotting that just doesn't really work for me most of the time.
0: Mm. I, I mean, I'm uh, in agreement with you that, yeah, I, I spent so much of the early part of the segment praising how I think, you know, Almodovar handles the political social commentary so delicately. I really like the, the the thematic harmony that he finds between that story and the basic uh, premise of, of these two mothers and, and the Twists and turns that their relationship takes, I think the the melt the specifics of that of that relationship and the places that El Medovar takes it don't work for me as well. And I'm wondering, you know, the the technical definition of melodrama is um, a a story that places a lot of emphasis on plot and incident and not so much on characterization. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you know that's and that's a pretty neutral. Um, descriptive kind of thing. It's not that that's not pejorative anyway. That's just kind of that's te- what melodramas tend to put a focus on. Is just that piling up of of incidents um, that increase the um, the amount of uh, tension in the the in the conflict and the the amount of uh, obstacles and tension that the characters themselves have to face. I think for me here um I don't know uh, an ingredient of good melodrama for me is that even as as the complications get might get crazy or or, or overwhelming there's still like a a seed or a kernel of um intelligible human behavior hmm. um, that has to kind of keep it afloat so even if you're watching like a douglas cirque film mm-hmm. even if you've never been in exactly that uh <laughs> situation and can't imagine yourself ever being in that situation the way that the character reacts being in that situation still has a has a coherence to it Mm uh and i think for me that's where parallel mothers might fall down a little bit is i i didn't find that kernel as much in in this in this story i had a, a lot of trouble not so much understanding why uh these characters made the choices they did, but more just wonder needing a little bit more time to sort of sit in those moments and sit with t- those decisions before the next complication came <laughs> came crashing down on top of the of, of the story.
1: Yeah, a few of those complications felt like they kind of came out of left field for me. So um, Janice is involved with Arturo, who is uh, the father of her child and. Um, and at one point he makes mention of like something else very large that is happening in his home and personal life that kind of uh, I didn't quite see coming and it didn't really feel like it had too much to do with the plot as well. And, and it
0: really undermines your your uh, desire to sympathize with him. That's agreed. for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. And so I, th- I think if there had been like a little bit of a kernel of fullness of character for all of these characters, I think I would have been a little bit more on board with Almodovar kind of tightening the screws on them with additional developments and like complications from the plot. I tend to be more of a character driven storytelling person more than anything else. So this is also partly just melodrama isn't necessarily always on my wavelength although i will watch a douglas sirk movie purely because of the technicolor and this movie delivers on that in spades as well
0: i mean the cinematography is i i don't even know if so much of the cinematography as it is the production design Mm -hmm. and the uh the um the sets like the 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 physical spaces that these these characters inhabit are vibrant and i who knows me that that is Alma Dovar's way of sort of maybe nodding to the glorious technicolor <laughs> of, of, for example, Douglas Sirk. But, um, I think that on a visual level, it's, it's very, um, it's colorful and I'm just, it's nice to see a film that isn't desaturated to within an inch of its life. Mm-hmm. I, I just, that that's nice to see. Um, I, I think that there's also a visual, strategy that almodovar returns to again and again which is to kind of have a fade to black but fade to black in a specific way so that and this is something i think josh larson in his written review of the film brought up is that um the the fade to black uh happens so that the very last thing that's on this that's visible on screen before everything goes completely black is often penelope cruz's face mm. and just how that that makes her that, that gives her this indelible presence mm-hmm. that uh, goes above and beyond even her performance. It's it's purely visual, and mm-hmm. uh, I think Josh mentions that it's a uh, it's a visual strategy befitting a star of Cruz's caliber. And I think that that it, I think he's absolutely right there.
1: Yeah, yeah, she definitely commands the screen in a way that you don't really see very many people do much anymore. And again, like. I don't want to detract from her performance because it is a very good one. I I think that she is doing a lot with a lot, (laughs) but not in a way that feels like histrionic or over the top necessarily. And like she, she is meeting the, caliber like meeting the emotional level of this movie i think right exactly where it needs to be
0: yeah you know the 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 old cliche is you know that the uh, an actor does a lot with a little but i almost think that in in the case of this film it's almost the inverse like cruz is doing a little with a lot but Mm. in a good way Mm. like there there's there's so much going on in janice's life um and I would argue, maybe a little bit too much. I, I think it's there's just a little too many, a few too many curveballs that Al- Dovar throws into her <laughs> life and, and throws at the audience to kind of ex- expecting us to buy about her as a person. That I feel like an actor who it takes a special kind of actor to take all of those curveballs and sort of cobble them together into a into somebody who still feels like a a person, a plausible person. And I think Cruz does that partly by not really overplaying it, mm-hmm. I think. And and that's that kind of confident command of of the material and of, of the screen is a, a big part of why her performance works so well.
1: I kind of, so I, I both want to and don't want to take issue with the word cobble <laughs> because I think that that implies that her performance is kind of all over the place or like pieced together and it feels Fair. like a very cohesive portrait of a very cohesive person. And at the same time, she's dealing with a lot coming from a ton of different angles. So, like, I, I get where you're coming I from there. I co-
0: guess cobbled together is the wrong word. Maybe synthesize would be a better term. Mm, mm-hmm. um, she, there, There's there's lots of disparate elements going into her, but uh, Cruz is able to sort of take them all and it, it it, ends up working. I think a lesser actor would not have been able to do quite as well. Mm-hmm. I, I think the, the writing here is... Might be a little questionable for me. I think Cruz sells it, and I think Alma Dovar, uh, his screenplay is strong enough in other areas that it's not something that I'm going. I'm inclined to look at too hard, but it, it's. I, I think that Cruz kind of does a lot to carry it through.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I'm curious too. <sighs> Cause I think I think my my disappointment with the movie is mostly just with that screenplay and how well it's able to synthesize like the different plots of Janice and her like kind of domestic drama um and her relationship with Anna and their relationship with their respective children, alongside this much more broad, like thematic thread of uncovering the truth and bringing it to light like on a national level and I, th- I think where I'm having trouble with this movie is that you're kind of placing both of those the domestic level is almost on like much more central than the like national like political themes that are going on and it almost felt to me like the theme of history and, and what we choose to uncover and what we choose to forget or leave by the waveside kind of felt like it popped in and out at at in opportune times <laughs> and i i think that's where i'm and i think that's where this movie is kind of sticking for me is like mm. i keep thinking about it which i think means that it was successful in what it was trying to do because it's not a movie that i watched and then immediately put away and said like this this doesn't completely work for me but at the same time it also doesn't completely work for me because mm. i'm not sure that it synthesized into a fully coherent character there's that cobbling together idea mm. again <laughs>
0: it, it it feels a little bit imbalanced i feel like I I needed I needed more patience I guess in terms of the storytelling here for that interleaving of of the the macro with the micro to fully to fully gel mm-hmm. for me because any one of these curveballs to to return to that metaphor uh, that. Get thrown over the course of this film would be enough to carry an entire picture all by itself. the mm-hmm. The relationship between these two mothers, the twist that happens where uh, that DNA test that I mentioned earlier comes into play, mm-hmm. um, the 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 deepening of the relationship between Anna and Jazz from from friendship into something almost persona like, mm-hmm. like the Ber- the Bergman film. Mm-hmm. Like, there's any one of those ideas would furnish. Plenty of psychological richness and material for um, thematic dovetailing with the political and social, uh, all on its own. With all of them in the same film, I think maybe the what you're noticing about it kind of coming in and out at inopportune times is is less that it's there and then it's not there. It's more just there's so much to distract us from from when that from, from when it's working that it 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 feels like it's it's very uneven.
1: Yeah. And then I keep thinking of pieces where I couldn't fully figure out where they were fitting when I was watching them and then like thinking about them a little bit later and realizing that oh wait, they do actually fit. So Janice is a photographer. She starts off photographing like people like she's she does portraits she does work for magazines and then after she has to return to work because she has a child and has to be able to support her child um she's back to photographing like i think she calls it handbags and shoes basically Mm. like handbags belts and shoes the ephemera sort of of like e-commerce almost in a way and so she's had to abandon this like personal connection with other people like taking portraits of someone in a way that represents them and who they are arturo who she ends up um having a child with is is a sociologist i believe and so she she's figuring out like ways to photograph him that fit him but aren't a caricature so like she refuses to use a skull in one of their portraits or whatever and then she's sort of reduced isn't the right word but she has to take work that is not the caliber of work that she's able to take like she's kind of stuck doing taking photos of just this object that exists and isn't going to exist later on down the line, as opposed to taking photographs of and representations of another person. And I think the movie is also concerned with disappearing, like living memory because the Mm -hmm. Spanish civil war is still in living memory, like on, on some level, like a lot of like, there are still people who are alive who, who do remember some of the stuff that happened then they were very, very small children at the time, but they're still around. Um, And I think that that's that thread of kind of the national choice to begin to remember something that was very ugly and then to call it for the ugliness that it is. Um, And I think that Janice is aware of that cultural shift and she's a little bit leery of it because she keeps reminding Anna, like, this is something that's important and you don't know about it quite so much. Like, this wasn't as important for you because you don't know anybody who had to deal with this. But I do – and I remember it. Um, and so I think that there there is this thread of we're going to forget eventually. Like everyone's going to forget that memory is going to die out. And we're kind of stuck with having to grapple with that too. So, and at the same time, like, that feels like a very strong threat. I don't know how to connect it to the interpersonal there, drama. There
0: there's there's a lot here also in terms of just the, the film's commentary on uh women specifically in society and and just how that also plays into this this overarching theme of facing up to um to where we've gone wrong, or where we need to do better. Hmm. Um, the being convicted, if you will, mm-hmm. to, to use to use more explicitly Christian language, being convicted of of sins, whether those sins are, are societal or personal, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the ways in which Janice is is, a, is kind of almost obliged, like she she needs to keep working. But she kind of has to take what she can get because she has a kid at home. Mm -hmm. And the way that Anna's mother uh, tells a story about how she's um, a quote unquote bad mother, but that's because she feels obligated to just grasp at the one last chance for uh, her to have an acting career despite being a woman of a certain age. Mm -hmm. And just the way that those are challenges faced by these women that aren't necessarily... Um, faced by the men around them, mm-hmm. and how that also is is a is a strange sort of erasure that kind of needs to be brought into the light in the same way that these these sins of the past need to be brought into the light. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's really interesting. And again, I think that's where the the film is strongest is when it's kind of drawing these connections or or maybe just putting those connections out there for the audience and letting us draw them for for ourselves.
1: Mm-mm. Yep. I can get on board with
0: that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, that is our review of Parallel Mothers. We just want to thank Ron Sturry again for dictating that to us as our patron pick. Uh, We really appreciated having the chance to sit down and engage with this film. So thanks again, Ron, for sharing it with us and with our listeners. Don't go anywhere. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. And then I'm going to share with Sarah the wonder of Tokyo story. So as we just mentioned, uh, that review of Parallel Mothers was brought to you in part by our Patreon. So uh, this is something that we, we we plug. You know, we try to plug about every week just to make sure that you know listeners who you know maybe fast forward through the middle segment or or, or whatever. Just you know maybe maybe just if they slow down, they'll get to hear us talk about the wonders of of. Becoming a patron of seeing and believing.
1: Yeah, um, one of the perks that you can have is to tell us a movie that you want us to review, which is what just happened in the previous segment.
0: Yeah, that that was that was Ron's pick, and that I I mean I'm I was pretty happy when Wade and I were coming up with reward tiers that. We decided on that one because mm-hmm. at first we were just like, oh, you know, what if we, you know, what if too many people sign up for that tier and <laughs> we're just doing those recommendations all the time? And then we kind of stopped and thought, well, that wouldn't be that bad, actually. Mm-hmm. And I think that that last segment was an example of a reason why. It's, it's really great to um, have a listener share with us a film that they found to be very meaningful mm-hmm. or maybe a film that they didn't find meaningful, but they'd be interested to have us dig into and try to find the meaning in. So, I mean, there's lots of different directions you can take it, but listeners, if you want to sign up for uh, that tier, it's our $10 a month tier at patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Yeah. It's not the only tier you could sign up at. There are others that will get you other swag stuff. We all get, Um, But the $10 (laughs) a month level has been pretty popular of late. So that might be something for you to investigate yourself.
1: Absolutely. And even if you don't necessarily want to support us on Patreon, you can still keep the conversation going by reaching out to us on Twitter or via email. Um, You can tweet at us at cbelievepod.com. Or seeing and believing, capc at gmail.com, if you've got something a little bit lengthier than 280 characters. But we like to hear from our listeners and we like to keep the conversation going. I don't know about you, Kevin, but I enjoy these talks. And it's mm-hmm. kind of nice to have that kind of bleed out a little bit more into everyday life as well.
0: Yeah. And there's obviously, I mean, Sarah and I had a lot to talk about with parallel mothers, but we're also interested if any of you out there in seeing and believing land have seen parallel mothers yourself and have. Thoughts that you want to share with us and perhaps with Ron about mm-hmm. what you think about that film. This That would be a great way to do it. We love to hear from you. Ron would probably love to hear from you as well about that film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you've seen Tokyo Story, I happen to think it's quite good and uh, would love to hear your thoughts on that as well. We're going to share our thoughts on that here in a second.
1: So, Kevin, we're going to go to the watch list, which, as you know, and as most of our listeners know, uh, is the section of the show where one host shows the other host a movie that they haven't necessarily seen before. So this week it was Kevin's pick, and uh, he chose a movie that, kind of like Parallel Mothers, is also about grappling with national loss, war in the past, um, and the trauma that comes along with it through the lens of one family drama. But instead of it being parallel mothers and a modern day melodrama by Pedro Almodovar, this is Tokyo Story by Kevin's beloved Ozu. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So um, we are going to be discussing uh, 1953 Ozu uh, movie Tokyo Story. The plot of Tokyo Story is an aging couple travels from their hometown of Onomichi in Hiroshima prefecture to visit their children and grandchildren in the city of Tokyo and they find that in the the bustle of post-war Tokyo their children don't necessarily have the time for them much anymore. So Ozu's kind of careful, steady camera surveys those intergenerational differences and the conflicts that arise from them within the busy life of of post-war Japan. So, Kevin, we've talked about Ozu a little bit before. Not necessarily an Ozu movie, um, but in our review of After Yang, which was in episode 324, um, we got to talk a little bit about some of the hallmarks of, of Ozu's filmmaking, and I'm curious to know what specifically like what what are the things that you like that ozu is doing in this movie in particular like not necessarily just the more general techniques that he's known for but like what's a shot that you love in, in this movie
0: that's a really great question because i feel like it it's easy especially with ozu because he is so stylistically distinctive mm-hmm um and because uh he returns to a lot of the the same themes over and over and over over the course of his films Mm -hmm. that it's easy to sort of talk about him in general he's like oh you know I, i love uh his warmth his gentleness his humanity and and you you kind of get bogged down in those generalities instead of talking about the specifics which is a shame because i think one of the strongest things about him and about tokyo's story is the specificity of the images and the conversations that he, he shows to us. Mm -hmm. So I guess to answer your question about a a specific shot that I really love, um, there's a sequence where, uh, the, um, the grandmother and grandfather, um, are, they, they've been kind of bundled off to the Atami hotel. It's this fancy seaside resort. Um, basically their, their children, are just like, we don't have time to, to spend with them and to show them around and to entertain them. Um, so we, we know what they want best. We know best. And it would be best for them if they go off by themselves and kind of have this holiday at a, at a hotel. And so the, the old couple is bundled off to this, this hotel, which is full of you know, young people you know, up at all hours, you know, having raucous parties and uh, Ozu has one of his pillow shots, the the famous technique where he, he kind of encloses a scene with book ending shots, usually of inanimate objects, as a way to give that set that scene apart from other scenes and kind of almost it, it's like the film is taking a breath. Mm-hmm. And the the shot that I really love is his camera fixates on the the uh, door to the uh, grandparents' hotel room. Uh, their door is shut, and we just see their two pairs of shoes, empty, lying outside that door. Mm. And I love that shot because, I mean, formally, it's just—it's a beautiful shot. Just mm-hmm. the the rigorous uh, f- composition of it is is very appealing. Um, it works very well to kind of get, provide that breath to the viewer, but I think it's also just so subtly powerful in what suggests emotionally that these um, these are two o- older people. They're not going to be around forever. Mm. They are going to um, when they do pass away, they're going to leave things behind of themselves that are no longer occupied. Like they're going to leave an emptiness behind. Mm. And they're also in being kind of shunted off by their children, by themselves to a, to, a, to a hotel where their family is not. They too are kind of experiencing this absence where they're by themselves and they're isolated and they're not with the people they love. Mm. And I think all of that is just encapsulated in just a simple shot of their shoes sitting outside a closed door. And I I think moments like that are why I love Ozu so much and Tokyo Story specifically.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think you just summed up why I appreciated this movie very much. You keep picking winners here (laughs) (laughs) for this watch list piece. Yeah, um, I think this time I've I've seen one other Ozu and it's um, late spring
0: which is one of my very favorite films of all time and Great would have been movie. my pick if, if uh, you hadn't seen it.
1: Great movie. So we agree on that there. Um, and I think this time I was struck by the, the first time I saw Late Spring, I was I was fairly new to, to getting into movies. So I think I was mostly struck by the direct address to camera, like whenever anybody has a conversation and then kind of the locked off like position that the camera is in. And this time, I noticed not that the camera is is kind of focused on a very square frame, although it looks kind of square. It's an Academy ratio. But that the space that the camera is looking at isn't a square. It's not flat. It's a cube. There's a lot of depth to what's going on. Like, people are arranged, like, in the background and in the foreground and in the middle. And you can tell what everybody's relationship is to each other just by seeing how they sit next to each other in a room. Mm. Um and I just I, I kept getting struck again and again by how creatively those shots were set up. There's never really a repeated shot, although there are shots that rhyme with each other throughout the course of the entire movie. Um, and that's just when you know that you're in the hands of somebody who really knows what they're doing and knows how to tell a visual story. so
0: Roger Ebert had a really great observation about the films of Ozu. I mean and he has he, he, he's I, I would highly recommend uh, our, our listeners tracking down his, great movies essay about Tokyo story. Cause it's just, he he's, he's knocking them out of the park left and right. Um, uh, he, he observes that, um, Ozu is, um, first a teacher and then a friend when you watch mm-hmm. his films, because you, you learn a little bit about how to be a good person from watching his films. And then as you get to know, his films better and better, you start to see him more as like as somebody that you you have great affection for and that you do think of like you almost know him through through his work. Um which is, you know, that's that's a, a great observation. Not what I was actually <laughs> intending to uh to talk about when I brought this up. But um his observation about the um the way that Ozu uses space in his films mm-hmm. is that uh if a character um, you know walks out of the shots like for example to go up some stairs to another room um, ozu doesn't you know his camera stays put ozu's famous for his stationary camera shots and the camera just sort of waits for that person hmm. the the person goes up the stairs and it takes them as long as it would take a person in real life to go upstairs and fetch something from an upper room and return and Allowing that kind of space, but allowing that kind of time for us to get a sense for the physical space and also allowing just kind of that time for the audience to just sort of sit in that room almost as if we're in that house with these characters waiting for this person to return. Um, It creates a very acute awareness of... The fact that these are people living in a physical space, this is their home that they live in, mm-hmm. and that acute awareness, in turn, I think, really strengthens the the invitation and the challenge that I get from Tokyo Story, which is um, the the invitation to to love. Unselfishly, mm. and that's that's so much of what this film is about. Is is these children? It's not that they're bad people, or that they don't like their parents, or that they just feel like they have better things to do. It's more just that they they've kind of forgotten how to love their parents in the way that their parents want to be loved, mm. and how and they've forgotten how also to accept love from their parents. Um, and it's all very subtle. It's all it's all in the subtext, but it's there. And part of that is. The way that Ozu allows us to just sort of dwell in these spaces with these characters and observe where they're sitting in a room in relation to each other and mm-hmm. the ways in which one of them kind of goes, hmm, after one of them <laughs> makes an observation and the, the volumes of meaning that are contained in that vocalization. Mm-hmm. I think that those kinds of subtleties really invite the audience into this family life and to kind of consider our relationship to our own family members
1: yeah i feel like i i kept getting drawn into the rhythms of that family life and then also just into the rhythms of the movie in particular and a lot of it has to do with that intentionality of that camera shot like you're not sitting eye level you're sitting as though you're sitting in the house with everybody else kind of kind of being invited to be a being within that space as you're watching all of these characters go back and forth and i kept finding myself getting tapped into not just the hums and like the ways that people, like, look at each other, but also just the, the specific words that they use. So the grandfather says so a lot, um, especially when he's pondering something. And he, he keeps saying that before he says something else, like, so, I suppose I'm going to be alone for a while now, or so, I, I guess, mm-hmm. like, we're, we're stuck here. Um, and I think he says that when he's being more and more contemplative. I don't know, I, I was trying to figure out if anybody else was, like, mirroring that language pattern, and I couldn't quite pick up on that. But it was something where... I could figure out what he was saying just by the way that he was saying it. And I love I love that this movie isn't telling you how to think about these characters or what to think about these characters or what lessons to take away from it, because it's not a movie that is a lesson. It's a movie that is it just is. And then what you take away from it is what you take away from it. And I, I just, I, I, really appreciate that kind of like non didactic storytelling that is still deeply powerful and instructive in the ways in which you can live.
0: It's, it's, it's interesting because you, you, you talked about how it's not, it's not didactic and yet it's instructive. Yeah. And that I think is a, a really an important distinction to make because Ozu isn't trying to sort of harangue you into thinking a certain way about the characters or about family. Or about the state of Japan in the 1950s, yeah. but by the simple act of observation, you are being instructed. You're being instructed by Ozu's eye, and you're allowing. We're, we're allowing our gaze to be directed to scenes and to people in the way that uh, Ozu is interested in portraying them. And there, there's there's a certain amount of uh, humility, I guess, that is required by that that kind of like submitting to that kind of instruction um not because you expect to get a sermon out of it but you just sort of like follow it where it leads and Mm -hmm. i think that the great thing about tokyo story is it leads you to some really rewarding places
1: yeah i think ozu is open and if you're open then you will be open to what ozu is telling Mm. you Mm -hmm. (laughs) perhaps um and that's really i think mostly shown in um Setsuko Hara, I, th- mm. I think I pronounced her name correctly. Uh, Setsuko Hara's character in particular, um, she's a uh, Noriko in this. She's also named Noriko in in Late Spring, if, mm-hmm. if I'm remembering.
0: Yeah, right. they they form a, a what's called what's known as the the Noriko trilogy, where she where she is this named the same person in each one of the films. She's not the same character, huh. but she's kind of like this archetypal. Just I don't know. Hara is such a she's a national treasure. She's so... She's wonderful. She's luminous. And even though she plays a different character in each one of these films, she she that luminosity finds different expression in the specifics of the character's situation.
1: It kind of feels like different ways of looking at selflessness, I think. I think in Late Spring, like she has to be pushed out into taking control of her own life, I think, in a way. And in, in this movie, In Tokyo Story, she has control of her own life, but she has she kind of needs a little bit of that push in order to be able to move on from her husband who is presumed missing in action and, and probably died in the war as well. And so I think there's there's a little bit of a, a push, but there's also a, a very strong thread of of selflessness and willingness to give of herself to other people. Um she gives up a day of work in order to be able to take her parents in law like around Tokyo sightseeing. It's not something that she needs to do. She's, she lives there. She gets it. But she also wants them to be happy and wants to spend time with them and to build that personal connection. And I think she continually does that even when it's inconvenient for her. Um, I don't know. She's just the kind of person that I, I would like to be. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that I ever really am, though.
0: It, it's it's so funny because, uh, you know, Osu is, is a very Japanese director. But there's something about... The uh, the way that uh, Chishu Ryo's, uh father at the at the end of the film, um, he and Setsuko Hara are are together. The the biological children have departed after the the funeral for the mother, mm-hmm. and um, uh, he tells her that she is more of a true daughter to him than than his than his own children, even though she's. You know she's not related to him except by marriage, mm-hmm. and there's there's kind of this almost gospel vision of of somebody who uh, being brought into a family who's not necessarily quote unquote part of the official family. There's there's something about being about how her humility and selflessness um, and smallness, like she's she kind of she's just you know an, an office worker. She's you know she's not um she doesn't have any particular claims to the the affections of of her father-in-law um you know she's not related by blood to to him she doesn't seem to really have any family of 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 her own to help her kind of through life and yet that that scene where she hears that from him is just it's such a wonderful healing moment like where where she's giving to him but he's also letting her know like I see you and mm. your um your devotion is is meaningful and um highly valued there, there, I don't know there's something that that speaks there, there's a resonance to me very strongly of what we what we get from god you know that even though we weren't quote unquote the the chosen people uh people from all all nations get welcomed in mm. and i think that that kind of welcoming spirit you know even obviously though it's not probably intended by Ozu. It's, it's there. And I think it's there because all, all true love looks the same in the end. Hmm. And and I, I really like that we get a little bit of that in Tokyo story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny too. Um, it kind of feels like a a repetition on similar themes, even though the stories are very different. I keep coming back to late spring, mostly because late spring is just so good. so good. Because Chishiryu plays her actual father in late spring as Mm -hmm. well. So it kind of felt like there was, um, I don't know, it's not a rehash and it's not a reheat. Like they're both very distinctly their own stories, but I think that they also kind of, kind of rhyme in harmony with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, In a way that I don't, think I've seen too many other places and I appreciate that Ozu keeps on coming back to that same to that that same attitude and to that same theme and is just willing to like sit and contemplate it from different angles Um, it kind of also just reminds me of his camera work because he's just he's placing that camera and he's presenting the truth as it is or as as close as you can get when you're seeing it through a camera lens Um, and then just inviting us in to think about it for a little while and then maybe come away with something valuable from that
0: and and the great thing about presenting the truth so matter-of-factly is it allows it allows a story to be sentimental without being mawkish yes he's not he's not trying to strong-arm us into feeling anything um we we just simply watch a, a simple story unfold and um the emotions that arise out of that are very honest and and un there there's no artificiality there at all and i think that that's again it's it's a whole it it grows out of his style
1: Mm -hmm. i think some of the simplicity too is because he is so specific about this particular family like it does it's not like he's trying to tell a universal story necessarily like there are specific things that each of these characters want and need and care about and sometimes it's just are we making enough money to be able to survive here in tokyo um but each of them approaches that same problem of like the business of how to be alive in a slightly different way, I think. And I think it's that specificity that makes these characters read as extremely real to me, even when we only spend a few minutes of time with them. Like I would love to spend more time with all of these people and just and sit and see how they go about their lives. And we only get two hours and 15 minutes of it. And that's enough. But... I don't know. I just, I kind of wish that there was more space (laughs) and more time.
0: I I mean, (laughs) so a soapbox I get up on is that there's, there's with kind of the rise of franchise filmmaking, no story is ever allowed to end. There's Mm -hmm. always a prequel to be made. There's always a sequel to be made. We always get to you know, there, there's always this impulse that we have to find out what the backstory to something is, mm. and Frodo never gets to sail into the West in, in this in this new <laughs> world. Like Frodo always has to have another adventure, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I, I think that it, it's it's wonderful to sit down with a film like Tokyo Story where you do kind of at the end of it you you're, you kind of go ah. I want more. But also, you get to have that feeling because it ends, it has a definite stop, and Ozu leaves us with that feeling. And that's an integral part of the work, and that's why it's a treasure and why other more contemporary movies are disposable (laughs) (laughs) entertainments. So that's my soapbox. I'll get down off of it now.
1: The, the train will go on back to Tokyo, and and there will be a melancholy whistle, and then that'll be the end of that. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, uh, I don't know that. Uh, there's I so- feel like
1: that sums it up, but also I feel like we've just scratched the surface. I mean, you know?
0: we we didn't. There, there's so much we could talk about. Like just we we didn't talk that much about the 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 evocation of like the post war setting and yes, and how the like there. I don't know there, and, and spe- to, again to move away from the generalities about Ozu and into the specifics of Tokyo Story. Watching it the second time, I forgot how kind of spiky some of the characterizations are. Like Chishu Ryo, he he gets drunk, and he, you know his friends harass a waitress, and mm-hmm. it's. I, I I appreciate getting kind of those moments as well, where it's not as gentle as some of Ozu's other films. There is kind of that that friction there, but I, I, again, I, I just keep coming back to how he invites us to love these characters in spite of their flaws and and in spite of the. Uh, it, to to love the world, I guess, in spite of the the horrors of World War II.
1: It's funny because I think everyone is very upfront about like what it is that they're doing and where they're going, but they're not really upfront necessarily about their emotions. And I don't think I fully understood just how deep some of that hurt was going mm. until Chishirio's character goes and gets drunk with his friends, mm-hmm. and you you sort of feel it as an undercurrent throughout the rest of the movie, just in the way that like he and his family talk to each other, and there's a lot that's left unspoken. But I think the moment when he goes and gets a bunch of sake and sits at a countertop and talks about how disappointed he is that he feels like his son hasn't necessarily succeeded, like, that felt like a knife to the heart. And it felt like it was a knife to his heart specifically and then by extension to mine as well because Mm. I hadn't realized just how, I don't know, disappointed he was that he felt like his son didn't feel like he was as successful as he could have been. I think that there's a lot of unspoken love in that situation as well, because he wants what's best for his son. And what's best for his son may not necessarily be being a small time neighborhood doctor. Maybe it's something else. And part of me wonders if all of these characters were able to stop like the busyness and the bustle of their lives maybe they would be able to recognize like this is the right place for me to be i don't know I, or maybe they would be able to recognize just how disappointed they are and then move on to something different and better i'm not entirely sure
0: maybe all these characters just need to sit down and watch an ozu movie
1: <laughs> <laughs> just what the doctor ordered
0: well listeners that that is our review of tokyo story i'm so glad you liked it i loved um, it it, it was. It's. It's a good one for sure. Um, if you've had a chance, uh, listeners, to to watch it yourself or, or rewatch it as the case may be, and and just have thoughts about that, obviously, let us know on Twitter or over email. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts next week. Uh, we're going to be moving away from like the the quiet contemplativeness of uh, Ozu to something a little different.
1: A little louder maybe. Um, <laughs> I'm feeling the need, Kevin, the need for speed. Okay. We are going to be watching Top Gun Maverick for our new release. And uh, I'm going to maybe fly a little bit too close to the sun. I am recommending for the watch list segment. A dad movie to someone who is an actual dad. Yeah. I am not a dad, but I love dad <laughs> movies.
0: <laughs> you know, uh, it, this, this is a movie too that uh, Wade, when, when he and I were, were co-hosts, Wade talked about liking this film a lot. And he recommended it to me. And I still haven't seen it. So Wade, if you're listening, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm finally making it up to you. We're going to be watching The Right Stuff. Yes. And uh, yeah, you know, like it's a dad movie. I'm a dad. Uh, it ought to be right up my alley. I'm I'm optimistic about this one.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and and in any case, you know, like three hour movies about the space program, like I can dig it.
1: Yeah, yeah. My personal brand is like sad men in space, but you know, you, you get the space race in there. Like maybe not so much sadness, maybe a little bit more uh, action adventure. Like sciencing your way into into <laughs> <laughs> into uh, new realms of discovery sounds like it's going to be a, a good time
0: it, it'll be a good time for sure I'm looking forward to it that is our show for this week Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ in Pop Culture Podcast Network our producer is Jonathan Clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen I'm your host Kevin McLenathan my co-host is Sarah Welch Larson and we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing